0: Welcome to Health Talk by Flowly. We begin every episode with a brief exercise to shift your nervous system closer to flow state. We do this so your nervous system can settle and you'll feel relaxed and ready to experience the interviews in each episode. Julian, who is the voice of our Flowly experiences, will take a few seconds to lead this exercise.
1: Take a moment to adjust yourself into a comfortable position. Take a slow breath in through your nose, hold it for a few seconds, and slowly exhale through your nose as well. In your next breath, breathe in for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. And now exhale for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. Continue to take slow breaths in through your nose, and out through your nose as well, counting in five and counting out five. We have you breathe in this pattern because it equals six breaths per minute, which is the average breathing rate at which people can best control their nervous system. In Flowly, we do individualized calibration to find the exact breathing rate healthiest for you because it varies from person to person. For today, We'll end this exercise with one more five count in, one, two, three, four, five, and a five count out, one, two, three, four, five. Let's begin today's health talk.
0: My name is Ling Tien, and I'm the founder of Flowly, um, we're kind of like the VR version of Calm, but we have a focus on helping people reduce pain and anxiety through doing something called biofeedback in virtual reality. Now, you might be familiar with Health Talk by Flowly, but it's a show where I invite you on and basically chat with health practitioners, different experts in the space, even chronic condition and chronic pain warriors to talk about their experiences. Today, I'm really excited to have Dr. Jamie Arnoff. Dr. Arnoff is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in teens and young adults, including those in the deaf community. Dr. Arnoff has a wealth of experience working with children, adolescents, and young adults across hospital settings, residential treatment centers, and community mental health clinics. Dr. Arnoff is a particularly trained in mood and anxiety disorders, child maltreatment, and trauma clearly knows herself. I love that Dr. Arnoff also combines evidence-based practices with humor and a focus on highlighting client strengths to better promote understanding and tolerance of stressful things. Furthermore, Dr. Arnoff also brings to table her own identity as a Spoonie, living with physical and emotional aspects of chronic pain herself. Today, we wanted to touch on two particularly impactful topics that um, I really wanted Dr. Arnoff to dive into, which is her specialization in self-harm and suicidal ideation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Arnoff.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be talking with you today.
0: So Dr. Arnoff, what kind of brought you into your current profession today? Because you've worked across so many different settings, um, and I imagine there must be some sort of journey you embarked on to, to get to where you are now.
2: Yeah, in terms of psychology, it was a little bit on accident. I um, started in college as a deaf education major, and they made us uh, go into a school the first semester and I spent time just with the children while the teacher was talking and found myself much more interested in what the kids were talking to me about in terms of their life outside of the classroom and how it impacted them then and also inside the classroom than what the teacher was doing. And I went back to my advisor and I was like, I think I should be a psych major instead. (laughs) So I did both. And um, through uh, all of my experience in college and grad school, just different externships and training. I you know I- I knew I wanted to work with kids. Um, I think maybe I started that way because I was pretty young myself and I thought I'd be able to relate a little bit better to them. And so once I kind of went on that track, I remained just every um, year doing a different type of work in a different setting with children. But um, it was my time in clinics or hospitals um, with supervisors specializing in mood and anxiety disorders that I really kind of like found my groove. And so when it was time to go off on my own in my own private practice that's kind of where I chose to remain um and with a lot of clients children and young adults in particular who present with anxiety and depression it's um not you know typical for some of those uh, clients to be experiencing suicidal thoughts or or urges to self-harm or actively engaging in self-injurious behaviors. So um, taking some extra experience in trauma and maltreatment during my training, I became kind of like the trauma person and they just kept being sent to me in terms of referrals. And now I just kind of feel very comfortable working uh, with that population, which I know is not always the case because it can be a very difficult conversation to have with someone else and to be present with someone and, and helping them through it is, is um, you know, a skill. So having this experience makes it uh, feel like something I'm, I'm open to and always welcome clients just be as transparent as possible with me because that's what they're going to get from me as a provider in the room.
0: Yeah, I I really want to circle back to that about your specialization there. But first, I wanted to touch on what type of chronic pain that you experience and kind of how that's informed your relationship with your clients and patients, because I think it's um, actually not as common as many people might think that you're interacting with a health practitioner or therapist or psychologist who has gone through many of your own experiences as well.
2: Sure. So um, for a little over a decade, I've had uh, chronic back pain and related nerve pain, you know, down both of my legs. More recently, I have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and trigeminal neuralgia. So um, pretty much. At some point every day, one part of my body, from my head all the way down my arms, um, through my back, and down to my ankles on both, um, you know, sides, is experiencing some sort of nerve pain. And um, I'm currently working with, you know, a functional medicine practitioner just to learn more about the potential autoimmunity that might also be existing in my body. That can contribute to, or is maintaining this inflammation that's existing in my body. And I think that, um, on a very surface level that impacts how I am in the room with my clients, because I'm, I'm definitely a shifter. I'm always wiggling and moving around so that I don't get super stiff. Or if I feel some nerve pain, um, I'll do, you know, one of my physical therapy stretches while I'm listening to somebody. And it's nice that I'm usually working with a younger population because they're just as squiggly and it doesn't matter. So they almost feel like they have permission to be as squiggly as they want, because it's not like I'm just sitting there like super stiff and in one position the whole hour I'm moving around. There's things for both of us to be playing with sensory Pillows and things to be fidgeting with. But on a deeper level, I think, um, you know, you can have training college and grad school. I have my PhD. I've been in this, you know, doing this work for over a decade. And you can have a lot of experience in terms of supervision and reading the textbooks and seeing the clients. But I think until you actually experience some of these things yourself, it's really hard to get into that deeper understanding and matching and reframing and reflecting the things that clients I think really benefit from validating, normalizing, all those things that are such a prevalent part of my work as a psychologist. It wasn't until I really got into the nitty-gritty of pain that I felt like I was more able to talk about the tough stuff with them because I could relate to them. And I, um, a lot of my clients know that I experience pain. They don't know the details about it or the diagnoses or things like that, but they're aware that that's something that, you know, I am going through. And so I, I wonder also if it helps them to open up because, they know that, um, you know, there's already two people in the room that I have gone through something a little bit similar. Cause it can right. be like such a lonely experience. Like why yeah. is this happening to me? What did I do to bring this on? But, um, to know even in being in the room with me that they already have someone to share mm-hmm. the experience with, um, on such a deeper level, I think really helps.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I, I'm sure that that it shifts Um, your patients and clients perspective to knowing that about you. Um, And, uh, you know, speaking of sort of lonely and isolating experiences, I think this past year with um, the pandemic, it's been really tough on many people. I've personally seen it in folks close to me, some of the patients we work with. And I'm wondering from, you know, your experience, have you seen a rise in um, self-harm or suicidal ideation during COVID? Um, And kind of what kind of impact have you seen the pandemic um, make on the population you do work with?
2: So I know statistically that has been found, like the prevalence of suicidal ideation and are just self-harm or self-injurious behaviors has increased over the last year or two because I was already working with individuals who presented with those experiences. Um, it's not something I've seen a rise in. Honestly, a lot of my clients really leaned into Remote working and remote learning and socialization from behind a screen, it it helped them manage some of their stresses and allowed them to uh, better understand and develop their coping skills so that once they returned into the world, they m- maybe were more equipped. However, at this point, now that things are opening up a little bit more, kids are going back to school, you know. Young adults are going back to work in different capacities. Parents are having to deal with all the changes. Now is when I'm seeing a little bit of an increase in clients that maybe had some things under control, but now that they're having to readjust and I think also the uncertainty of it all makes it um, really confusing and really difficult to manage on a day-to-day basis. So it could be, you know, a really good day and then a really bad day. And that's, you know, on the bad days, sometimes when those urges will resurface and uh, those thoughts will kind of pop pop up into somebody's mind. So I think more now recently, now that they're having to re-enter the world and figure out how to be with other people.
0: Right. And I'm I'm imagining a lot of people listening, um, they might themselves struggle with this, or um, they might be a family member, caregiver, or a loved one um, of somebody who's struggling through this. And um, especially as you're seeing this rise, I'm wondering if, you know, you feel like there are any techniques or ways that um, folks can support the person struggling through this because I think oftentimes as someone where I've been a caregiver for somebody um, with mental health challenges, it feels like you can't do anything to help, especially when it's so um, deeply impactful and severe, like um, thoughts of self-harm, et cetera. So in your experience, are there ways that you've navigated working with you know, family members or caregivers in this aspect?
2: Yeah, I get that question a lot um, to your point from family members, caregivers. I give presentations in schools um, for school staff, but also the kids on youth mental health and suicide prevention. And that question comes up so much. Like, how do I support a friend um, in school or outside of school, like via text message or through Snapchat or whatever is going on right now? And I think the first thing I always want to tell people is to. That there's no right way and no like quick fix to do that. I think people are looking for the one thing to do or the right thing to say. And that's so much pressure on the helper, the person who wants to support their friend or their family member. And so to tell them that just simply letting that person know that they're worried about, that they see them, that they're there for them, that they care about them and just like be there with them. You don't even have to talk sometimes. It's just having someone in the room, like maybe proximity, like shoulder to shoulder, you know, ask them how they're feeling about physical touch in that moment, but like put your arm around them, uh, acknowledge that they're having a hard time and that you're here to be an ear. If you, if you know, if they want you to, um, and also I think if you know that someone is having, um, concerning thoughts like safety concerns, and it may be a crisis situation, letting them know that while you were there for them to listen to them, and you you really are, that if it gets to be something that feels like a crisis or an emergency, you are going to, you know, encourage them to also bring this information or what's going on to somebody else, whether it be an adult, another adult, a provider, 911. um, And kids especially get really nervous about putting themselves in that situation because often kids will approach a really good friend and say, listen, I have been having these thoughts and feelings. I trust you, but you can't tell anybody. And that's so much pressure for another friend. And so I always let them know that it's better to have a friend be mad at you for a short period of time and be safe than the alternative and to lay that boundary at the start, right. is being very transparent and, um, kind of allows for the person to be open, knowing in a way that they're, they're going to be safe. They're going to be safe sharing this with a the person. They might have some support, which is maybe what they wanted all along and like telling somebody else. Sometimes talking to a friend about it is kind of like practice. You know, I'm I'm feeling so overwhelmed by this thought or feeling. I can't keep it in anymore. It's obviously affecting me. Like when somebody is sharing information like that, they've probably been holding it in for a period of time and they've recognized it's too much. So, this is finding a trusted person is kind of like their practice. And, okay. Let's see how this goes. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's see what it's like to get it off of their chest, which I think is amazing. I'd rather them get it off their chest in one way or another, even if they don't immediately call someone like me, um, because then that person can maybe be a support to the sharer, right?
0: Well, I'm one, uh, Oh, okay. sorry, doctor. But I, I, what you're saying really sparked a question for me, which is, I, I imagine a lot of people listening to our podcast are parents. And um, I think there might be a tension between wanting to be there as like a supportive figure and confidant, but also being there as an adult, right. To um, maybe bring this information to a A practitioner or someone more equipped to handle um, potential crises. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you recommend a parent or caregiver kind of navigate that tension of being there while needing to guide that person um, to an expert.
2: Sure. Yeah. I would recommend that the parent hear the client out, like the kiddo out, Um, because if the parent automatically Quick preface, it is overwhelming to have someone share this information with you. Like this is what I do and what I love to do, and something I feel confident and confident in, and it's still a lot. So for anybody hearing this for the first time or even the millionth time, it's still a lot to take in and process. However, if the client any age goes to someone else and starts sharing information like this, and the person that they're sharing it with who's, you know, a close friend, a family member, someone that they trust. That's why they've chosen them panics and is like, Oh my God, this is too much. What's wrong with you? You need to go to a hospital. It's so unlikely that that person will ever easily and openly share that information again. And so to just like, You can, you don't even have to say anything, just like nod your head, lean in, take deep breaths. Maybe they'll start modeling your breathing um, so that they'll become too. And then once they're done sharing the information, let them know that it sounds like they're going through a really hard time. Validation works every time. Like I hear you and it sounds like you're really struggling thank them for sharing with you. Cause that's gonna, that's like positive reinforcement, right? They've gotten like praise for being honest and open and vulnerable, which is important because maybe they'll be more likely to do it again next time. And then say, I really feel like this is something that we could right? Not just you like, part of the friendship or the family member could say we could bring this to someone who you know specializes in this work or could be a support for both of us as we navigate this together because again it's all about wrapping around this client with support from every avenue and so to tap back into this feeling of loneliness that they very likely have using we let's go together. It, it takes away from this, oh my gosh, I've now like opened myself up to, you know, something that's wrong with me and something that needs to be fixed about me and not to go to see the stranger alone. And it's going to be scary or awkward or weird. People are going to find out. So the fact that, you know, the person that they share it with is still being very calm, not panicking. There's always, I always have kids, take their time in sharing sometimes because they've seen other people or have had their own personal experience of making um you know a statement about wanting to hurt themselves and they've been sent to the emergency room like, right away without an assessment um, it's never a great experience to you know be yeah. waiting in the emergency yeah. room and so they're terrified that even if they just like admit that they had a, a quick fleeting thought, um, that wasn't a crisis it just was something that they happened to like pass on by
0: yeah um, that, I love like, that yeah. point of the we the mm-hmm. togetherness of it because um I remember one of our flow uh, members they actually were struggling through this with one of their children and I remember they actually got fully for both of them to do together as part of the recovery process and I think that, that togetherness, also the taking time for both parties to take care of their mental health was so incredibly important in their journey.
2: Yeah. Anytime, um, I provide a coping skill to a child, I make sure that the family, obviously with permission from the kiddo, because confidentiality is so important to them. They feel like, you know, they have to have their own space. Um, but they're always, almost always willing to allow the family member to come in. I share the coping skill. We practice it together and then I encourage them to make it a game, like a family game. So one thing that I do with kids a lot in terms of a form of distraction doesn't matter what they're feeling, if they're feeling depressed, if they're feeling anxious. If they're just like not feeling well physically um, to play the ABC game is what I call it. So they pick a topic and they gather around with however many people are there and they alternate person by person through the letters of the alphabet, thinking of something that belongs within that category. So like animals would be like aardvark, bear, cat. And it usually takes enough time and enough thought that they're so focused on planning what their letter is going to be, what the, um, what the category is. It often becomes silly. So there's laughter involved and it's something that they can do like in the car on the way, uh, home from school or on the way to, um, extracurricular activity or before mm. family dinner or, mm. um, before everybody gets ready for bed as something that, um, the whole family's engaged in. So it's not, a you know, homework or a coping skill. It's just a fun family thing that everybody's participating in so that the kiddo doesn't feel alone or weird or left out. And the family can also then support the client, you know, when they're struggling by being like, let's play a game. Let's like, let's just play the ABC game. And it's just, you know, kids respond much better to games than they do homework or skills.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, you answered one of the questions I was going to ask. Is you know some different techniques, and I think that's a really wonderful one because it also seems so low stakes yet effective, um, like you said in distracting that client. So that that's really helpful. Um, Absolutely. One thing I was also going to ask you is, and I'm always curious because we work with so many, you know, doctors and health practitioners at Flowly. That it is, I as I'm increasingly learning, as also the daughter of a doctor, is that it is a very high stakes um, job, and you know, every day can be quite stressful and very different. And I'm wondering for yourself, especially as a spoonie, kind of what is your daily routine? How do you manage? you know, your work and, you know, the burden that comes with it, but also, you know, what you're experiencing yourself physically and emotionally. Um, Are there tools and techniques, rituals you have every day to kind of really um, work on your own mental health?
2: Yeah. Um, so I always wake up 30 minutes before I need to get up because uh, I always snooze once and then I stretch. I spend like a solid amount of time in the morning before I actually get out of bed, like stretching my body and seeing what is going on, being mindful of like what aches, what hurts, a little nervous when certain things don't hurt. So I'm like, am I really safe? I don't know. Um, go on social media, just see what's going on. But I follow a lot of chronic illness uh, accounts and they're usually like really funny memes that make me laugh and also make me feel super validated. <laughs> so I'll do that and then get up, put weight on my body, and then do it again. Like, see if I'm actually standing upright or if I've had a muscle spasm and I'm like tipped over a little bit. Um, you know, get ready, make my breakfast, take all my medications, start the heating pad routine. I have a wraparound heating pad that, you know, if I'm home and working, that's my exercise for the day is like going back and forth to the microwave to heat it up. And then just like casually checking to make sure I haven't actually burned myself. Um, like, because it's so hot, because it feels so good when it's hot. Um, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll go to work. Um, I stretch, I take breaks throughout work to stretch. Um, keep with the heating pack. I always have a doctor's appointment. So I'm going to the doctor's appointments and then inevitably something frustrating happens when I'm at the doctor's appointment. So I wait until I get into my car and I text my husband and my best friend. We have a group chat and I vent extensively. I'm probably crying while this is happening because I think might as well just get it out i know how icky it feels when you like hold that in and it impacts you so let it out i'm such a supporter of crying there's like eight boxes of tissues in my office at any point in time no matter where you're sitting you can reach for a box of tissues (laughs) (laughs) i think it's just like so important to um you know let people know it's okay to cry um I always, you know, I'm eating throughout the day depending on what, you know, my nutritionist at the time is telling me may or may not help with my inflammation, but with my TN, I only chew on the left side of my face. Mm-hmm. So, then um that you know, my face feels uncomfortable afterward. I have to remind myself that I take such good care of my teeth, but it's never enough. I have to go to the, you know, mirror and make sure that there's nothing wrong. And then I floss and mouthwash just in case. (laughs) Um, then I uh, take 100 pictures of my dog, tell him (laughs) he is an angel baby and that he's amazing. He's been a good puppy nurse all day. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I do things like it, depending on how much time I have in between all the things that I do for work, I do a little bit of everything like throughout the week. So, you know, always on my toes, but I do sensory things. So I'll light. Candles or incense that smell really nice. Um, sometimes I'll use a lavender scented heat pad so that I get that scent as well. Um, I always have like a favorite YouTube, Netflix, Hulu channel, basically just like on my phone playing in the background throughout the day. It's almost so. it's something I've seen a million times. So I'm not actually paying attention, but it's just like a comforting sound that I have behind me, just like if I actually need a break, I don't have to do anything or move. I can just like readjust my attention and look at the screen. Um, but also I can like still hear what's going on. So if it's funny, I'll laugh. Um depending on my mood, you know, I can I can set that up to be something specific. I do a lot of writing. So Mm. I might write for our blog, for our website. I've been doing a pain series because I think it's just so important to be honest about what's going on. So hopefully I'm like supporting people while also just getting to vent about what's going on. Um, and I do this thing called blackout poetry. So I take a book and um, a magic marker and I read the page on a book and then I highlight like out basically blackout the parts that I don't want to use. And I leave specific words on a page that create a message And it's like
0: a poem that I've created from just a regular book page. Um, That's a great great exercise, I feel like.
2: Oh, I love it so much. I actually have, um, I have it right here. I've been doing it yesterday because I had one of those really frustrating doctor's appointments. But like, it just looks like this. It's just like, um, see if I can find a page where I did it. Yeah, just like a regular book page where you just black out. Right parts of it and it can be super enlightening or super like dark and venty. whatever I need yeah. if I like need to let it out then I do that um but yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of the five senses so I do that with kids a lot too and in my presentations that I bring to schools we always like show an example of a, what I call a coping kit but learning for yourself and for other people what you automatically go to To relax is so important and having those tangible things is so nice because sometimes going like internal and more cognitively with it is so difficult Mm. when you're feeling really overwhelmed by like depressive thoughts or anxious thoughts or you're just in so much pain. It's yeah. not easy. It's not clear of like, oh, yeah, here's my toolkit of skills. Let me just like reach for it. You that's, need to, to like literally reach
0: for right. it. Right. That's 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 very akin to what we talk about at Flowly, which is we do a bottoms up approach. We're starting with your body first, um, because for so many of patients that uh, we work with that have chronic pain or anxiety or um, really depressive thoughts to start top, uh, top down, which is kind of your mind first is incredibly difficult, right? Because you're already struggling to work Over. through all this thinking and, um, all this pain. And so actually starting with the body, with your senses, visually, auditorily, um, it can be so incredibly powerful and in putting yourself into the right mindset to then, um, deal with whatever that you're working on with your practitioner.
2: Yes. So I have a huge drawer hidden in my office. Once kids know where it is then they know where it is, but they don't find out until it's time. That's just filled with like an entire dollar store's worth of buckets. And they get to, they have to do an activity where they talk about the five senses and think of what ways these items tap into, you know, what might be soothing for them, but then they, bring it home. And I always encourage them to have it somewhere where they might feel stressed. So well, for a lot of kids, um, in the car, on the way to school, make a little baggie for their backpack, maybe in their locker, um, by their nightstand, maybe family attention. So you know, in the kitchen near where the table is, but it's things like, um, you know, glow sticks and candles for light but candles also if they're scented um for smell I have like little sachets that smell like lavender or vanilla or ocean breeze that they can like put in their drawers or in their backpack um things that, like clappers that sound really yeah. loud yeah. yeah, squishy yeah. things, soft socks like soft eye masks And then obviously the taste is the most important for most of the clients that come in. They want their chocolate. They want their uh, fireballs. They want their Jolly Ranchers, their mint Mm -hmm. gum. But, you know, it's just a small, series, like a couple of dollars worth of things. But it makes such a big difference. And then once somebody learns what their, you know, sensory soothers are, they can just easily continue to expand their kit and know that if they're in a situation, you know, even if they're like in the car and they just have to like pull off to um maybe the author kid with them, they can just like pull off to a gas station. They don't have to be anywhere specific or fancy to like find access to a skill once they figure out what it is in terms of the five senses. And it's just such a grounding activity too, to pull you away from all the thoughts that bring yeah. you so far out of yourself. So I'm a huge five senses fan.
0: That That's incredible. And I think that's a really good note to end on um, taking away this approach of the five senses and how maybe people could apply it to themselves and their families and their loved ones. Um, I think that's incredible and super in line with what we believe in as well. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Arnoff, coming and sharing your experience and expertise. It is You work with a really um, challenging population. And I want to thank you so much um, for your work and your dedication to helping others. And um, I'm sure a lot of folks can relate um, that are listening. So thank you so much. Um, and we look forward to having more conversations with you. Thank you, Dr. Arnoff.
2: Thank you so much.